Welcome back to the Facts About PACS podcast. I'm Michaela Isler, NAPAC's Executive Director. Today, we bring you an election update with Jim Ellis of Ellis Insight. If you crave the latest on emerging trends and campaigns and elections, don't touch that dial. That's right, Michaela. Father's Day is in the rearview mirror and July 4th is dead ahead. It is summer 2022 and the primaries for the midterm election year are in high gear. They are, Adam, and some key election related themes right now include high turnout, redistricting rulings by the courts and the real impact of a Trump endorsement. We're going to get into the weeds in South Carolina, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Texas, just to name a few in just a minute. The Facts About PACS podcast is produced especially for the members of the National Association of Business Political Action Committees. In every episode, we recap this week's NABPAC activities, share actionable intelligence and best practices, all while connecting the PAC community. Thanks, Adam. It is hard to believe that the 4th of July and just July in general is uh, on our heels here, but we are excited over here at NABPAC, Adam, because we are back in person for lunch in July on July 20th and looking forward to having a really robust discussion about diversifying your pack. It's going to be a great time, good eats, great company, and hopefully we'll see all of you there. Well, now joining us is the Jim Ellis. Welcome back to the Facts About Packs, Jim. Well, thank you so much, Michaela. Is that like the Ohio State University that they always talk about? Uh, I think it is. I do, yes. On football games, right? (laughs) Or maybe the University of Texas, as I prefer. Jim, (laughs) let's just jump right into this. What is the number one emerging trend that you see right now in this midterm election cycle? Well, you know, Michaela, there's been a lot of talk about a Republican wave coming. And I have to admit from the first half of the primaries, and we're exactly halfway through the primaries now, it does seem like there is a building wave because I always like to look more at actually how people vote as opposed to a response to a poll. And even though the polling data is showing that Republicans are way up on almost every measuring scale, the real rubber meets the road when people actually vote. And if you look at the at the 24 states that have voted, uh, there's 17 where you can really compare it to the 2018 midterms. And of course, we keep midterms together, apples to apples, oranges to oranges, midterms to midterms, presidential elections to presidential elections. So there's 17 states. And if you look at the turnout and gauge it and go back to 2018, the Republicans are actually uh, ahead of the Democrats in uh, 14 of those 17 states. So in other words, more, excuse me, it's it's 13 of 17. It's more Republicans have turned out to vote in those 13 states than, uh, than just four for the Democrats, and they're the typical ones you would expect for the Democrats. So far, what we've seen, California, Oregon, New Jersey, and New Mexico by just about 2,000 people. So the the trends are really pretty good for the Republicans. And the um, amount of increase in turnout, I'm sure, has delighted the Republican leaders. Because you look at a place like Pennsylvania, the Republicans are up 92% from their turnout of 2018. Now, the Democrats were up 58 in that state, so that's really good, too. But to go up 92% in, in a place like Pennsylvania, that's a real positive sign for them. In Georgia, despite voter suppression, the Democrats were up 29 and the Republicans were up 110%, 110% from 2018. 
So that's telling us something there that you've got. And what does it tell us? It tells us the enthusiasm gap is residing with the Republicans here, which is extremely important in a midterm. And we saw that in 2018 when the Democrats had the clear enthusiasm gap on their side. And this time it does appear like it's the Republicans. The other interesting thing about Pennsylvania and Georgia for the Republican turnout, not not the Democrats on this case, but the Republicans, the 2022 midterm turnout exceeded the 2020 presidential turnout, and that is unheard of. So I think there's really something happening in those two states for Republicans and may put that Senate race more in play than we certainly might have thought at the beginning of the cycle. And uh, after both parties have experienced real problems in the state there with the Republicans taking almost a month to figure out who actually won their nomination, and then John Fetterman, the Democratic nominee, having a stroke right before the primary, it was caused from a blood clot to the heart. Obviously very serious. So both parties have some problems in that state in getting on track for the the, uh, general election. But I think there is some... Things bubbling there beneath the surface, particularly in those two states. And so that could be good news for Republicans. So that is remarkable. And I don't know that I'd heard anybody put it in that way, Jim, that you did to help people understand there is a rising tide on both sides. But some of what we are seeing is truly unprecedented. The former president of the United States has given out his endorsement, Jim. Give us a sense of what his batting average has been and how impactful it is or isn't right now. Well, Adam, it depends if you count the unopposed races where he's endorsed like he does. And if you do that, he's like 95%. But that's uh, that's pretty easy to do when you're counting unopposed races. The But he, you know, in all honesty, he's done very, very well. It, it, except for Georgia, uh, most of the candidates that he has endorsed in competitive races, and we start with that Ohio Senate race, when he endorsed J.D. Vance back before the May 3rd primary, and he did that about three weeks before the election. When he did that, J.D. Vance was running fourth or fifth in every poll, and he was last in fundraising. And he ends up winning by eight points after the Trump endorsement. I mean, was that all because of Trump? No, but it certainly helped him. We look at just what happened last week with uh, Tom Rice, Congressman Tom Rice, losing in South Carolina, The only thing he had done against the Republican base was vote for the second impeachment. And they, of course, targeted him. There were six people in that race. Uh, Rice can't even get to a runoff. He loses outright. He lost all eight counties in that district. And in two of the eight, he came in third. I mean, it was a thorough, thorough defeat for Tom Rice there, who had really been a very representative congressman of that area for 10 years. And, uh, but that, that one vote. And then of course, before the primary, he doubled down on that impeachment vote saying he would do it again if he had the chance. And that just really infuriated the Republican base. And he was beaten by state representative, Russell Fry, who Trump endorsed. And we were laughing and calling it, I guess uh, it's fried rice now uh, with the result of that of that election. That was an extraordinary result. Now, the polling looked bad for Rice, but I thought he would make a runoff and then lose the runoff. I thought that was what was going to happen. But but Fry wins outright just simply because they had, you know, a total of seven candidates on the ballot, including Rice. He had six opponents. That's not easy to do to get to 50. And and, uh, Russell Fry did that. He got to 51 and Rice could only get to 25 
in his own party's primary. So, I mean, that's clear defeat. Well, Jim, let's keep on the theme of shockers, if you don't mind. Um, Let's talk about the shocker in South Texas last week. We have the special election in Texas where uh, Myra Flores won in that race for an open congressional seat in a historically Democratic district. What is happening there? We know special elections aren't harbingers, but just curious if uh, any insight for what's to come in November. Yeah, the South Texas with the Hispanic vote. And remember, this was an 84% Hispanic seat that flipped to the Republicans in the special election. Now, let's keep in mind there was only 25,000 people that voted. So that is considerably less than we'll see in the general election. And the general election is going to be a lot different than, than what we just saw. Because remember, this race was run in the current districts. And the 34th district was rated by the 538 organization as a D plus five. That's what Myra Flores won the D plus five. The new 34 is a D plus 17. So this is a much different election. And the reason it is, is because the Republicans map drawers wanted to try to win the neighboring district, the 15th. Now it was a really strange situation we saw down there because the 15th district Congressman Vicente Gonzalez, who only won with 55, 50.5, percent of the vote in 2020. So the the reason that 34th district was vacant is Congressman Philemon Vela decided to resign from the House, took a job in the private sector. But Gonzalez was already running in the 34th and not his own district. And so he, 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 he could not run in the special because he's already still the congressman from the 15th. This is how confusing this is. So the Democrats had to have a different candidate who would only serve the, till the end of the year if they won. So obviously that wasn't real attractive for people to run. Myra Flores was already the Republican nominee in the new district as well, because she won that uh, March primary as Gonzalez did. And so she was able to win that. But that that still should not be overlooked because that district had not elected a Republican in over 100 years, that Brownsville area of Texas. And, And But if you look at that whole border, there's a lot going on there in terms of of people changing. The Hispanic vote may be moving closer to the Republicans because in all of those, there's five districts that touch the border. And the only one that didn't flip, uh, well, the only, well, they haven't all flipped, but the only one where Trump did not improve substantially, actually he improved in all five, was the El Paso seat, the one that Beto O'Rourke used to hold. That's still solidly Democratic. But the rest of them, are beginning to move. And in fact, Biden didn't even get to 52% in any of them, and he lost two of them. This 15th district, I think, is probably one that they flipped to the Republicans. And now with Myra Flores, Gonzalez, I know, was really trying to get the Democrats, hey, you got to do something to win this seat, because now remember what happens here. She is the incumbent, not him. Yeah, I was about to point that out. She is going to serve as the first Mexican-born congresswoman in the United States House of Representatives, she will serve there until January, regardless mm-hmm. of what happens in November. Regardless and of what happens. Po- that's right. And as you point out, she beat Sanchez outright. Um, so we see evidence again of the strength that, that you're pointing to and in the context here. You, you're talking about redistricting, which, which is such an important contextual element. And most of our audience really understands this and the role of yes. the census. I want you to take us deeper into it because the courts obviously are where we adjudicate this and and they're holding a lot of cards. Where are we on the court rulings to come on redistricting, Jim Ellis? It's been a wild court year and we're not done. 
we saw the early range. Remember when redistricting began, it was viewed as, and even the Republican leadership were saying, well, we're going to win the majority just on redistricting. And when they were talking, they were going to win 50 seats, which was never going to be the case. And it, it was never the case that they were super far ahead on redistricting. But they did control a lot more states than the Democrats. But we had a lot of different things come into being. One thing that people were overlooking is the number of states where one party is maxed out. For example, like the, the, Massachusetts has nine seats. The Democrats have them all. So even though they control the process, they can't gain anymore. Same for the Republicans in Arkansas and Utah and places like that. They already have all the seats. So there's quite a few places where the, the parties are maxed out. So that takes a lot off the board. So it's where you can gain. That's what you have to look for for redistricting. So the early court rulings on, on the maps that were challenged, which is all the critical ones, uh, went the Democrats' way, almost all of them. But the upper courts have reversed virtually all of them. They've either stayed or reverse the rulings. And so the maps that we're going to look at for or have in place for at least 2022, because a lot of these states are stayed, and we'll come back and we'll see rulings next year, and then we will go through a whole redraw process. And that is particularly true with the Alabama case that the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear. And they will hear that in October and rule next year. And that's a voting rights case. And many believe this is going to be a landmark voting rights ruling and maybe the most important one we've seen in decades on voting rights. And if that and if it is a big change, we may see almost a whole new redistricting cycle for 2024 because they'll have to change the maps to adhere to what this ruling is. And so that but for 2022, we're pretty well set. And the only exception to that is Louisiana, where it looks like this judge is going to draw a just district. That'll cost the Republicans a seat because they're going to add a black district to Louisiana. The rest of the maps, including Florida, look to be set. And um, that's at least for 2022. The Florida map now is the most important one for the Republicans because it looks like they'll probably pick up four seats just in Florida. Whereas before it was North Carolina, but then the Democrats did win that ruling. And now the Republicans go from maybe gaining three to maybe losing as many as two there. So that's how much difference these maps make. Michaela, I don't know if you have been following this drama in Pennsylvania. The uh, more or less unknown outside the state, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who is running against Dr. Oz, suffered a stroke. And Jim, you mentioned this. This is bizarre, right? We've got a TV star versus a sort of internet famous guy whose health challenge. Tell us more about the Futterman-Oz race. Uh, I, this is, I think, going to be the bellwether for the majority, this Pennsylvania race. You know, Democrats usually have the advantage here, but Republicans are gaining. As we talked about the turnout, Republicans did a lot better in turnout. Uh, they're obviously energized and have the enthusiasm. For the first time, in decades, the registration rolls, the Republicans are less than a half a million down. They're normally over a million down. So it's been, they've been moving uh, forward and Democrats are coming back. So a lot of Democrats have, have not, have changed their registration, not to Republican, but to unaffiliated. And so we've got, I think we, we are seeing some trends in Pennsylvania, like we've seen in Ohio, like we've seen in Iowa, where the constituency tends to be moving to the right. Now, the Democrats still have a big advantage coming out of Philadelphia, and that's usually enough to win a state for them. 
And Fetterman did extremely well in the Democratic primary. Uh, he destroyed Congressman Connor Lamb, who most people thought would be the better general election candidate for the Democrats. But Fetterman destroyed him. And so, you know, I mean, he's an interesting guy. He's like six feet, nine inches tall, bald with a beard. Not that I've got any problem with that. Neither do you. No, yeah. me either. And, and you know, just yeah. to hear yeah. the man talk, he is yeah. an interesting guy. And he really sort of is a very compelling voice. You know, he wears the hoodie and the shorts everywhere. And he's just, a, you know, he's got all big tattoos. Um, but I'll tell you, I, I think the way that worked out in the primary. I, I think the Republicans are in better shape with Dr. Oz than they would have been with David McCormick, who he barely beat. And the reason is, I think McCormick set up perfectly, in my opinion, for how Fetterman would want to run the race. It, because David McCormick was a hedge fund CEO, one of the largest in the world, and he worked out of Connecticut for decades. And... You know, I mean, is the populist guy coming from uh, the, the poor area, Braddock, Pennsylvania, near Pittsburgh, where he's from? You know, he was homeless for a while, Fetterman was. You know, he rose himself up. He represents all of the struggling people. I think, I think McCormick was the perfect opponent for him to draw that contrast. I think it's harder for him to draw that contrast with Dr. Oz because most people know who he is. And... You know, he doesn't he doesn't come from that same type of uh, of background uh, that you can, you know, a hedge fund operator. I mean, you know, what defines wealth, elitism and privilege more than that? And that's what Fetterman wants to run against. And I think he has a harder time with Dr. Oz on that front, because Oz will have an ability, I think, to be more of a populist than McCormick would have been. Jim, you touched a little bit on Georgia. Curious what yeah. you're seeing with the, the the Senate race and with Herschel Walker. You know, I think that Senate race is, is uh, going to be a tough one. Uh, Walker's doing better than I expected, to tell you the truth at this point. The last poll I saw had a dead even at 47 apiece. I think Warnock's really tough. Um, Warnock has raised more money than any Senate candidate in the whole country. And, you know, Walker has very inexperienced as a candidate. Everybody knows him in Georgia, so that's a big advantage. Uh, so he won't have to spend money getting his name known. He will have to spend money in getting an image known that people would have confidence in him as a U.S. senator. I think Warnock has done a good job in, in his short term as a senator. Remember, he won the special election back in 2020, so he only got, he and Mark Kelly in Arizona, they only had the two years, and they're back on the ballot now. But you know, I, I don't think Warnock's really made any mistakes, uh, except, you know, the hard, the you know, the left voting record, which uh, they all have. But, you know, he has made no gaffes. I think he's come across well. Um, but then, then you look at this turnout here. And are the Democrats going to be energized enough to overcome what could be a, uh, you know, wave of Republicans coming out to vote? Remember, Warnock only won by a few votes in that runoff election. We won't have a runoff with the two of them. One of them will go over 50. Georgia is the only state that has that law where you have to get to 50 in the general election. And that's what costs the Republicans those seats because they couldn't do that then in the runoff. They barely got to, they almost got to 50, but didn't in the primary. So that caused the secondary election that they had in January. That won't happen this time because there's not enough minor parties that's going to affect that. I don't think anyway, at this point, 
uh, I would still, I've always favored Warnock in this, and I, I still do at the end of the day, but I am questioning it now. I really am. Uh, so we'll just see what kind of candidate that uh, Walker turns out to be. So, Jim, let's talk some predictions in the House. What are you thinking as far as the pickup in the House? Well, I don't think it's going to be any 50 seats like there's some people. And let's talk about that for a second. There, there's some, and even you listen to Fox News on some of this stuff, and they're talking 40 seats. It, it, that is not going to happen because, and, and then people will point, well, it did in 1994 and, and 2010 when the Republicans got 54 seats in the 94 election and they got 63 in the Obama first midterm in 2010. The difference here is in those years, the Republicans were at 177 and 179 seats. They are today at 213, once all the special, well now 214 with with Myra Flores, assuming they win all the rest of the special elections that are out there. Well, you're, you're not gonna gain 40 when you're starting at 214. And the other thing to keep in mind is on the lost seats. So in reapportionment, seats change states because Congress since 1930 has been locked in at 435 members. So on population gains and shifts, some states gain seats and others have to lose them. There were seven seats that switched states in this census. And Republicans are taking the hit, losing that seat in the states that lost representation in six of the seven. So they're not really at 214. You really have to take them back to 208. And if you do that, I can see, you know, 28, 29 maybe seats. That really kind of translates to about 20, between 2022. 20, they're going to be in the, in the low 230s, I think, uh, which is far a far cry from 50 seats. But it's still a pretty substantial majority, and that's where they've been when they've had the majority. And I think that's what's going to happen. I mean, maybe you'll see, as we get closer, we'll be able to tell more. As we see more general election polling, we should be able to tell. But that's my best guess in terms when you look at the maps. And again, this is only the fourth time where we've had a redistricting year in the first midterm of a new president. And the average loss is about 25 seats, regardless of the party. And if you, but if you add the redistricting component, when the districts become more stabilized, your gains are going to be less. And so that's why, you know, 20, I think, is a, is a very fair number. And that certainly puts them in the 230 range. I look forward to uh, seeing where we all end up. And Jim, just really want to thank you for sharing your time and insight with everyone today. Well, thanks so much for having me back. It's always a great pleasure to be here. And thanks to everyone downloading and sharing this podcast. Subscribe and meet us right back here next week.